Our Father in heaven, I ask that you would use the truth in the Bible to be a light that shines also in dark places. And where there are misunderstandings, I pray that you would use what you've taught me to be helpful here. I ask in the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Amos. That should give you a few extra seconds to get there. Amos chapter 9, which means it should be easier to find an Obadiah, which is right after it. I mean, because it has so many chapters. Amos chapter 9, and we're looking at verse 9. As Adventists, you hear about a doctrine called the shaking. If you've never heard of the shaking, then you're about to hear about it. But uh, this is a classic passage in the Bible about an end-time phenomenon that's been paralleled in history where God takes a large group of people and narrows them down by some means to a smaller group that he can use in a more powerful way. When you think of that, that uh, storyline, Gideon comes right to mind, right? Where God took a larger group and narrowed it down so he could do something. And in the end of time, he's going to do the same thing. Amos chapter 9 and verse 9. For lo, I will command, and I will sift the house of Israel among all nations, like as corn is sifted in a sieve. Yet shall not the least grain fall to the earth. Let me say this plainly, that farmers in many parts of the ancient world and maybe some parts of the current world, well, you know, grains grow with a a covering or a shell, a hull or a husk that is not as edible as the grain. I think that's true for a large percentage of the grains in the world. And so if you want to use a grain, one thing you need to do is remove the husk, the hull. Somehow you get that. And in many societies, the way that's done is you put those grains on some flat surface and you crush them, either by two large rocks or by stomping on them or having horses tromp over them or somehow you put them through a difficult time. And then you take that crushed grain And you might put it in a container and then throw it up in the air, the grain, and catch it. And throw it up again and catch it. And throw it up again and catch it. And what are you doing? What you know is that the grain is much heavier than the chaff. Much heavier than the hulls that you're trying to get rid of. So when there's a breeze, when you throw it up, the breeze catches the light stuff drags it away, and you catch the grain. And that way you end up with something that you can turn into flour without bothering people, right? It's important to get the chaff out. That's an illustration that both Jesus and John the Baptist used for what God is going to do with his church. The chaff is going to be removed. But Amos gives you an important and encouraging piece of information about the process. Because when the farmer is throwing up the grain and catching it, he has 10,000 grains on his plate. And it doesn't hurt his feelings to lose a few of them. 
It's not like that in the shaking. God says in the shaking, not the least grain will fall to the earth. In other words, the shaking is not dividing between weak Christians and strong Christians. It's dividing between true Christians and false Christians. Not between weak and strong, but between true and false. And for some of us here, that should be encouraging. And for others, it should be intimidating. But for everyone, it should be informative. Amos 9.9 is an important passage. All right, I'm done with that little message. Does someone want to start us off with a... Oh, I should tell you questions I don't like. I don't like questions about me or questions about you or questions about someone else. If you're going to ask a question about a person, find a way to word it generically. Like, what should a person do if? And not, what should I do? And if you say, what should a person do if? Be sure it's not so particular that everyone knows who you're talking about. And I don't like questions that have an agenda behind them. In other words, if you think that really the Trinity is the most dangerous doctrine in the Adventist church, I don't mind if you ask a question about a verse, but I don't want you to ask a 10-minute question. Do you understand what I'm saying? Or a question where really you're just trying to get the attention of everyone else to say what you want to say. If that's what you want to do, hold a press conference afterwards. But for here, I'd like it if you ask questions because you want to learn something. Is that fair? Yeah. All right, does anyone have a question after I've scared you away? Go ahead. I can't. So the question is, why do I make this connection between the truth about God's vindictive justice and the issue or that obscure statement Ellen White said about an omega of apostasy that would come in the future? And let me clarify that Ellen White did not say enough about the omega for us to really nail down what it is. She didn't say enough. Uh, so when I say that, I always try to say it in a way that is soft. I hope I said it soft when I said it today. But you know that I'm not even sure myself that it's true. Did I make that pretty clear, what I said? But here's what I think are some elements that I would expect to see. I'd expect to see that that apostasy appeals to both conservative and liberal elements of the church. Because the church is more liberal in the United States and in Australia and Europe, but the bulk of Adventists in the world are generally conservative, at least in some of the ways we're talking about, not in the issue of diet. But in other issues, most of the world is that way. And I would expect it to have broad appeal. Then I notice when I go back to Kellogg that Kellogg's startling apostasy was not taking the strange uh, off-scouring or the, the weirdest or wildest elements of the church. In fact, it didn't even get Conradi, it didn't even get um, Ballinger. It was taking the core faithful people Jones and Wagner and Prescott and others were moving that direction and that some went that way and came back. So I'd be looking for something that was more centrist in that regard. And, and maybe something worse is coming along. But I've just been amazed as I travel of how this 
idea that's predicted in 2 Peter 3, it, it's being found all over the place. The emerging church is a liberal development. And I don't find it well represented in other fields. But um, anyway, we'll see what comes. The, I think the apostasies will be startling, and that might mean that people will make radical changes, or it might mean that people we thought were most stable will be taken. And either one would be a startling thing. So since I'm doing a lot of guesswork in public, I don't wanna do any more on that topic. So is there a question on any other topic? When the Bible gives a command, I see in the command evidence that obedience is possible. And the Bible says very clearly, grudge not one against another. It, it says, look, turn with me to Colossians 3. Let's just look at what it says in this topic. If we see what it says, then I think that we can talk to God in our prayer about this passage and say, I believe that this can be done. I confess this is not how I've been living. And I want to put on these character traits that I'm reading about here. Colossians chapter 3. And uh, look at verse 8. Maybe we need to start all the way back in verse 6. It says, For which things sake, and the which things are quite a list of terrible things in verse 5. For which sin's sake the wrath of God comes on the children of disobedience. In other words, is he making light of how wicked these things are? No. Not at all. In the which also you walked at some point when you lived in them. So these terrible things that warrant condemnation, Paul says don't forget that you also warranted condemnation early in your life. Do you see that in his logic? He says, but now you also have put off all of these. And then he includes some of the things you have put off. Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. I want to come back to blasphemy. Because to blaspheme in our evangelistic series means to take the prerogatives of God. And in the book of Revelation, in the book of Daniel, what the little horn does in the Roman power it really does take the prerogatives of God in many ways. But the Greek word blasphemo, blasphemio, is a very common word that means something more generic than that. It means to speak evil. So when you say something mean about someone else, that's blaspheming in the sense of Colossians chapter 3. You can check me on that in your concordances, but it's just the truth. Colossians chapter 3, and we just were reading in verse 8, but now verse 9. Do not lie one to another, seeing you have put off the old man with his deeds. Verse 10. And you have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge, after the image of him that created him. Do you see that there is a robe to put off and a robe to put on? And that the robe you take off has character traits, and the robe you put on also has character traits? And... It doesn't sound like it's natural because he's saying that you need to do it. Put these on. Verse 11 or verse 12. Put on, therefore, as the chosen of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies. We would say a heart of mercy, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering. Long-suffering doesn't mean just to 
be suffering for a long time, it means to put up with it well. Long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving one another, if any man has a quarrel against any, even as Christ also forgave you, so also do ye. What Paul says about this, Brother Hill, and we won't go there for time's sake, but it's in Romans 2. He says that when you're in a spirit of trying to or condemning those who do wrong, that you are despising the mercy of God. He asked this question, are you despising the goodness and forbearance of God that leads you to repentance? We remember the last half of the verse, but we forget that it's a question. The question is, if you are holding a grudge against someone, are you despising his goodness and forbearance? Of course, Paul is alluding to the idea in the parable of Matthew 18 that we already read. I mean, we talked about it, we read the last two verses, the parable when the 10,000 talents are forgiven. If Jesus, if I accept his forgiveness, I have to accept it inside of me. I can't just accept it outside of me. And if you haven't accepted his forgiveness inside of you, uh, you don't have it yet. So I'd say to someone who has trouble holding grudges that you want to think about the mercy of Jesus until you love it and accept it on the inside and to choose to put on bowels of mercies, to put on kindness and humbleness of mind. And you don't have to have a feeling of liking someone to be nice to them. That what God asks of me isn't that I feel right, but that I do right so that I can begin to do right and the feelings will come sooner or later. And if I've been badly abused, they might come later. In the case of Corey Ten Boom, they came sooner. But if you reach out your hand and don't feel anything, reach it out anyway. Does that make sense to anyone what I'm trying to tell you? Uh, the idea is put on kindness of heart. I think Jesus gave the Matthew 18 parable to help people like that, to realize that their experience wasn't as legitimate as they might think it is. Someone else have a question that you'd like to bring up? Yes, brother. I'm so glad your question didn't last 10 more minutes. I was getting worried. All right. So the brother asked an important question. I'm going to reword it because I think I'm going to word it in a way that many people would understand uh, that aren't here. The Bible talks about God's commandments and his judgments and his statutes. You find these words in the Old Testament just like that. His commandments, his judgments, and his statutes. You find some other words used too, but uh, I want to talk about those three. And I just want to define them a little bit, the way that they're used by Ellen White and the way that they're often used in the Bible. But in the Bible, they're not used precisely consistently. That is, sometimes those words are used interchangeably in ways that would be troubling. But a judgment is a civil law that has a penalty clause. That is, judgments are to guide the judges. They tell the judge what to do. So if a law says the man that steals must pay back, pay back fourfold, that's a judgment. It has a moral aspect, and the moral aspect is don't steal, and it has a penalty aspect, and that is he should be, it should be imposed on him to pay back four times what he stole. Whenever you see a law that has a penalty phase, you know that is a, a judgment. And so you're going to meet this in your evangelism. As soon as you teach the Sabbath, someone's going to say, should we stone Sabbath keepers? 
And they're going to take, I mean, that's not what I meant to say. Should we stone Sunday keepers? And they're going to take you back to the man who picked up sticks and he was stoned. Has that happened to any of you already? You've been taken back there? The, the Sabbath is the moral law, but the idea of killing the transgressor is a civil law. And that's why it had a penalty attached to it. The moral law goes much further than the civil law. That is, the moral law extends all the way to the thoughts. But there'll never be a civil law, at least there should not be, a civil law that is against being proud. Because that is not for the government to enforce. Moral laws don't have a penalty phase because they're enforced in the judgment. Make sure you follow me because we'll get to statutes in just a minute. But civil laws, where are they enforced? Here. And moral laws, when are they enforced? There. Civil laws are enforced in, not consistently because you don't always get caught. Or you might be able to bribe your way out. But moral laws, you can't bribe your way out, and they are very consistently enforced. Now, notice I didn't use the word ceremonial law yet. It's because ceremonial laws can, both ceremonial laws and moral laws can be civil laws. That is, if you say, kill a lamb, that's a ceremonial law. But if you say the man who doesn't kill a lamb is going to be banished from the tribe, that is a civil law. Civil laws can be made out of both ceremonial and moral precepts. Are you following me so far, what I'm saying? What about statutes? When God gave the commandments, those laws are broad. They go a long ways. They extend even to the thoughts. All sin is a violation of the Ten Commandments. But we do not intuitively see how far those laws extend. Do you know what Paul said in Romans 7? He said, I would not have known that it was a sin to covet if the law had not said, thou shalt not covet. In other words, Paul intuitively didn't, as a Pharisee, didn't see that there was anything wrong with coveting. It didn't look like a sin to him. But was it a sin? And how did he find out? The law told him. Uh, that's an important idea for you. Because if you think the law is intuitive, you'll eventually reject the Sabbath. This is what happened to John Bunyan. You know the man who wrote Pilgrim's Progress? He wrote an entire book against the Seventh-day Sabbath. And that book is witty and well-written, and I wouldn't be surprised if it leads many Adventists out of the faith someday. But his book against the Seventh-day Sabbath, though it has many weak arguments, it, you can see easily the foundation argument that was meaningful to him that led him to search for the others. It was his prison ministry. In his prison ministry, he saw real conversions. He saw people give their heart to Jesus. And when they gave their heart to Jesus, there was a change. In that change, they stopped swearing. They stopped trying to steal. They became honest. They became loving to their brother. And he realized the change that he saw is what you call conversion. It's the new birth. It's the New Testament experience of having the law written in the heart. We'll take that a step further. 
he noticed that when the law was written in their heart, they never did become Sabbatarians. Conversion did not make automatic Sabbath keepers. Therefore, he concluded that the Sabbath must not be part of the moral law. Do you see his logic? Can I answer that for you? The law is written incrementally. That is, it's written as you understand it in your heart. The process of writing the law in your heart is sanctification. It happens over time. It's done by the Spirit. That's why the New Testament says that we're sealed by the Spirit. It's not that the the Spirit is the seal, but the Spirit is the one that writes the law in our hearts. And as we accept various aspects of it, he writes that. It's when the man in prison learned that he shouldn't swear, that's when he stopped. And it would happen later that he might learn he should not even use veggie cussing, and when he learns that, that will stop. Right? Well, what's going on? It's that the law is being continuously written in his heart, and that's why they don't become automatic Sabbath keepers, just like they don't become automatically non-covetous persons. It requires an understanding that they can come up to. I am getting to your question. I'm not avoiding it. The statutes were laws given to explain and apply the commandments in ways that might not be intuitive for the Hebrews. That is, as a Jew, reading the commandment, thou shalt not commit adultery, you might not realize that it's wrong to have intimate relations before marriage. But it is wrong based on the seventh commandment but you can't see it. So it was written out plainly in a statute. And those same statutes covered a lot of moral ground. They're the ones that forbid incest, for example, and quite a number of other things. They were simply direct applications of the moral law to things that you would not see intuitively. For example, tithing is an application of the law that says thou shalt not steal. But you might not see it. So God went ahead and made it simple for you. The commandment is thou shalt not steal, and the statute shows you that when you don't pay tithe that you're robbing God. Even if the whole nation does it, it still counts as theft, right? So I don't believe that the feast days ever have been those kind of statutes. They never have been those kind of laws that were given to defend or to explain the Ten Commandments. But in quite in the contrary, they were given, like other ceremonies, to teach things about the gospel. Let me just show you a few verses on this, and then I'll refer you to a website called BibleDoc, B-I-B-L-E-D-O-C, dot O-R-G, where I have an article called Feast for the 21st Century, which is a 15-page answer to this question. Turn your Bibles to John chapter 6. Uh, John 6, verse 4. And the Passover, are you there, John 6, 4? And the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was nigh. I'm so glad there's no verse like that about the Sabbath. Do you realize what trouble it would cause us as Adventists if there's a verse that said, and the Sabbath, a feast of the Jews, was nigh? Look at chapter 7, verse 2. Now the Jews' Feast of Tabernacles was at hand. 
Look at chapter 11. Chapter 11 and verse 55. And the Jews' Passover was nigh at hand. It's obvious to me that when John wrote his epistle, he did not expect that his readers would necessarily have any idea what the feast days were. He didn't expect them to be familiar with them. He did expect them to know what the Sabbath was, and he calls the Sabbath the Sabbath. He does it many times. But four times, we've only looked at three of them, but it's also in John 2. Four times he says plainly that these things are feasts of the Jews. In Colossians 2, which you're familiar with, verse 16, why don't you just turn there for a minute. I'm giving too long an answer to a short question, but I think it might be relevant to your cousins. Somewhere, people that you know, this might be helpful to. Colossians chapter 2 and verse 16 is a passage that, if it was taken all by its lonesome, maybe could be understood two different ways. You could understand it to say, don't let anyone judge you for keeping these things, or you could say, don't let anyone judge you for ignoring these things. I think it's just being graceful to say, or gracious to say it could be taken either way. Because I think the context really pushes in one direction. But I want you to observe something about verse 16. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of a holy day or of the new moon. Do you notice that all those are singular? Meat, drink, holy day, new moon, they're all singular. And then, I don't know what version you have, but it makes a difference. But it says, or of the Sabbath days. But what troubles you a bit is that the word days is in italics, right? So it makes you wonder if the word Sabbath is singular also, but it's not. It's plural. That's why in some versions it'll just say Sabbaths. But uh, Sabbath days, the King James writers didn't want to lose the plurality of it. That's why they added the word day and made it plural. In Greek, when you're going through these words, and I don't think Greek is very helpful to the average person much of the time in studying the Bible, I have found it only in maybe six or seven passages that knowing it was really very helpful. But this is one of them. In Greek, these words in verse 16 have genders and numbers. You know, like in Spanish, words have genders and numbers. And uh, just like in Spanish, in Greek, uh, pronouns like which need to have an antecedent and those ante they must agree with their antecedent in number and in gender. I know I just lost like 40 people in here, but just try to listen for a minute. So the word which, and I don't mean like someone who has a pointed hat, I mean when you say, which one do you want? That which? That word in Greek has 24 different spellings. That's because when you see it, you can know right off the word that it's referring to, whether it's masculine, feminine, or neuter, and then whether it is plural or singular, and then whether it's the subject of the sentence or the object of the sentence, or there's two other cases in Greek, we don't need to get You can know that much about the antecedent just by looking at the spelling of the word which. Does that make sense to you what I'm saying? Yes. 
When you look at verse 17, where it says, which are a shadow of good things to come, let's take good things or just things. Now it's Hebrews that says good things. Which are a shadow of things to come. The word which there agrees only with the word Sabbath as its antecedent. Sabbath is the only neuter word and it's the only plural word. So when Paul wrote this, he wasn't saying meats or drinks or feast days or a holy day, which are shadows. He wasn't. The which are shadows is just a phrase to qualify. It's as if I said all the boys and girls and moms and fathers and the dogs that have leashes and owners. When I say that have leashes and owners, you don't think I mean the dog, I mean the moms and the pops and the boys and the girls. You know I'm only talking about the dogs. And the reason I say which have leashes and owners is because I don't mean all dogs. I mean a certain class of dogs, and I'm limiting, I'm limiting it by what I say. Are you following me so far? Yes. When he says, meat and drink, and holy day and new moon, and Sabbaths which are a shadow, he's telling you it's not all Sabbaths. It's a certain class of Sabbaths. Which Sabbaths? The ones that are a shadow. And a shadow is not a statute. A shadow is a, is a ceremonial law. Statutes are a defense of the Ten Commandments, an explanation of the Ten Commandments. I know that was a long answer for your question. I hope I didn't make you angry. But uh, I have articles there if you ever want to see it. Does anyone else have a question? Something you want to ask? Can you say the website again? Yeah, the website is Bible, like B-I-B-L-E-D-O-C, Bible Doc. That stands for document. That website was reserved by none other than Tony Everett of Young Disciple Camp, who thought that my domain name did not match the contents. So he reserved that name and asked me to use it instead. And um, I thank him for that. BibleDoc.org. And you'll find the article there on the feasts. And if it's not satisfying or you just want more, you could write me. And I have two other things I've written on that topic that I don't put in the website because Feast Day Keepers have, have corresponded with me after I wrote that. And I have saved my replies to them because some things in those replies would be helpful to people who weren't satisfied with the article. I think simple is better than complex for the average person. And it's better that article is best by itself for the person who isn't going to go any deeper than that. Any other question before we close the Sabbath? All right, well, those were good. Uh, maybe I'll introduce just one question just for myself that I think that some child might ask someday and there's no one around to answer it. Why? Could Cain marry his sister and it not be a problem? Maybe some adults will also have that question. So you know, maybe I need people to at least be 11 years old to follow this, that all of the information for building you and yourselves is in pairs. You have two copies of every bit of information inside of you. There are two 
piece of information about your eye color, and there are two about your nose length, and two about your hair color, you have two copies of every single piece of information inside of you. And your body doesn't need two of them. It only uses one. Now you might be wondering, well, if it has two, which one does it use? Your body is so smart. I mean, there was a wise creator that made your body work properly. So, it doesn't take the left side or the right side in these pieces of information. Your body, when it goes through, it decides which side is the better side. In science, it's called dominant. But what you might not know is that your mom and dad have lots of defects. I mean, we all have lots of defects in our information. Hundreds and hundreds of serious mistakes. We have enough defects in us to make us blind and deaf and crippled with cerebral palsy and frankly our heart should stop working. We have lots of mistakes. But the reason that we come out the way we do is because when your body comes to a mistake, it doesn't use the messed up side, it always uses the good side. And when it comes to a mess on this side, it only uses this side. So your mom and dad each give you a set of information, and though you get 10 mistakes from your dad and 10 from your mom, since those mistakes don't match, it doesn't cause you any problems. Do you follow so far? You end up just right. But if you got both sides from your mom, that would be terrible. Because every mistake on this side would be paired with a mistake right there on this side. And that means that every defect on this side would be built into your body and you wouldn't even live. When you marry a relative, like a cousin, I know you're not going to do that because you're a culture. But when you marry a relative like a cousin, he or she has one-eighth of the genes that you have. If you marry a half-sibling, that sibling has one-quarter of the genes that you have. Even if you marry a second cousin, that person has, out of 100 genes, six of them are the same. That means if there's 20 mistakes, you're probably going to get it. And this is why to marry a relative is really dangerous. Does that make sense to anybody what I'm saying? It's really not safe for the kids. And even though there are sometimes difficulties with cross-cultural marriages and interracial marriages that come from social problems, I'll tell you one thing, they make healthy kids. Because they certainly don't have any of the same do you understand what I'm saying? Yes. But I'm not saying anything about the topic. I'm just commenting to help you understand. But go back to the time of Abraham, and there were not nearly so many mistakes in that information. Because over time, those mistakes are accumulating. And you could marry a fairly close relative, and it wouldn't cause you any problems. In the time of Moses, you could marry a more distant relative before it would cause you a problem. But in our day, it would take a very distant relative before it wouldn't be a problem. But now you go back to Adam and Eve. Are there any problems in their information? No problems. And so God didn't make any issue with that. There was plenty of information there. And he ended up giving that information to his people through Moses when it became important, which shows the wisdom of God, 
and the kindness of God, and he's made it something for us today. There. I hope that makes sense to at least half of you. All right. We're going to close the Sabbath now. Let's kneel for prayer and do that. Our Father in heaven, I thank you for the beautiful things that you've done, for the wisdom you've displayed in the Holy Bible. And as your Sabbath is passed, I thank you for it also, and we look forward to the next. Teach us how to keep the commandment by working well during the week, by honoring the holy day when it comes. I ask in the name of Jesus, this media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.